you can't get people to do things they don't want to do. Even if I put a gun to your head, some people will just say, shoot me. Most people try to like force you to go in the direction you want. And what you have to do is actually just be a really bright beacon that like draws people. With people, I need to always put myself out there. But then in terms of everything else, like I've always been super curious and just explored. I don't see a mental model as having to be stuck in business. I can take it to my relationships. I can take it to my health. I can take it everywhere. Ethereum is kind of like that app store for the entire machine. And then you can have like little app stores on top. Like you have music app stores, you have art app stores, because like finance, music, and art were like the first ones that come to blockchain. I want to just die happy. I want to die with friends surrounding me. Like I think if you can do that, you kind of won the game of life. Rob Neal. His mission is to help people improve their lives through technology. And as a software engineer at Mem Protocol, a company pioneering tools for the social era of Web3, he's well on his way to doing this in a deeply impactful way. As a refugee from Liberia, Rob's mother raised him and his three siblings as a single mother on a thin budget, working constantly in order to provide. Inspired by his mother's work ethic and the struggles that she went through to provide, Rob chose to better his own life using technology as his tool to do it. Now on the forefront of Web3, Rob believes the blockchain can be the key to helping many people build wealth and create better lives. In this episode, we talk about how Rob's upbringing as an immigrant from Liberia shaped his relationship with wealth building, the importance of stepping into other people's perspectives, and a crash course on the blockchain and its implementations in our everyday lives. So without further ado, my name is Dan Russo, and this is Grow, the podcast where each week we bring on entrepreneurs, creators, and other inspiring guests to help you grow into the best version of yourself. All right, Rob, Neil, what is going on, man? How are you? I am doing great, man. I am... I feel I feel at peace. I love that. We were just talking pre-show how I, I, I kind of observed that, you know, in the last couple times that we've hung out, you've seemed more in flow than you've ever been. And I'm really excited to dig into that um, and to kind of, you know, talk about why. But I want to start the show. Um, full disclosure, you and I have known each other for and have been friends for Six years like now, I think. Five, six years, yeah. Five, six nice. years. I think we met in 2017. So that would be almost five years now. Almost five years. I mean, which is wild to think about. Um, best five years. What was that? The best five years. The best five years. I would agree with that. It's been, it's been a hell of a five years. I loved it. Um, it was my, my life was nothing before you entered it, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking to my heart. Um, but... We've we've been friends for a long time, but I feel like there's still so much about you know you that I I don't know, and so that's why I'm really excited to start with this question, which I ask all my guests: um, Who is Rob Neal? Where are you from? And like, what was the environment that Rob was created in? Uh yeah, yeah. So I guess there's multiple ways you can think about it. You can think about it just as like the data point. So like, I can give you that, but like, so I actually give you that really quickly. Uh, so let's see, Rob Neal. Born West Coast, Africa, Liberia, uh, came to the States during the Civil War uh, as refugees, lived uh, basically single mom, 
went to Rutgers, got an education in IT uh, with a minor in entrepreneurship, uh, and then started working in tech, and now I'm working in crypto. So that's like at the data level. But then I think there's like a higher level about like where it's like, I think the way I would define me is basically around what I think about and how I'm thinking. Like, I, I think my, like, my data points, my demographics, and it actually works in this something I want to talk about later. Like, I think that's like a higher, like, that's like a surface level view of me. But like, I think what really defines, or what I hope defines me overall my lifetime is like, I want to be known for how I think. I want to get paid for how I think. And so I really want to spend all the time talking about how I think. But yeah, those are the core structural, like, high level demographics of me. It's like, yeah. Well, lucky for you, we're going to spend basically the entire podcast talking about how you think because you are probably one of the most intentional thinkers and also action takers that I know. And that is one of the things that has always really both impressed and inspired me um, about you because it makes me want to be more poignant when I think, more poignant when I act, um, after we hang out and after, you know, we, we spend time together, um, it, it, it rubs off on me. Um, so we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how you think, but I want to dig in a little bit more to what you call the data points of the demographics, because you said it so, um, casually, but there's really some things in there that I want to dig into. <laughs> okay, you, let's dive you in. said that you were a, re- a war refugee from <laughs> the western coast of Africa. Was that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Liberia, yes. Talk to me about that. How old, you know, when were you born and how old were you when you left? And and do you have any memories from living um, literally in a civil war at that at that time? Uh, yeah, so let's see. I was born in 93. Uh, I think the war technically started like 96-ish. Uh, and then we came to the States in 2000. I don't actually remember much because uh, from what I can tell, they basically try to protect us from a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, I think, and I actually tend not to even bring it up with my mom and my sister because I know they have some stuff that they don't really want to talk about. And like, even like, as I've asked my mom about it, she actually used to be assistant press secretary to the president of Liberia. So oh like, we were really close to that. Yeah, so it's like, and she's talked about like certain things where it's like, I can see how sad she is. Like having seen friends, like losing friends and things like that. It's like, I just don't want to bring it up because I don't want to bring that status up for us. So it's like, there's actually a lot of things I really just want to like interview my mom and talk to her about. It's just like, yeah. I would need her to feel like, I'm not, I don't want to upset her. I don't know. I feel like, I feel bad. I don't like seeing my mom sad. So that's basically that. But awesome. like, uh, I didn't really see much. Yeah. So like, I came to the States and like, I just like, I came with a very clear mind. Like, I, I was just like still a kid at heart. So like I was basically not exposed to it. Probably why I'm still happy all the time. (laughs) So yeah. That's awesome. So do you think that, I mean, first of all, you have an incredible mother and sister for that matter too, wanting to shield you from what I can imagine was just, you know, horrible things, especially if your mom was that close to the government at the time um, and the president. I can only imagine that she saw some pretty, um, you know, horrific things. And we won't speculate about that. Um, but I mean, that just speaks wonders about how much they love you and care about you, that they wanted to shield you as a kid, you know, from 
from those, you know, incidents. And um, yeah. you, know, you mentioned it that you kind of don't really have much of a memory of it. And that seems like it was really intentional parenting on your mm -hmm. mom's part. Um, what what's your relationship with your mother like um, now? Um, you know, it seems like you, you know, she loves you a lot, obviously, to, to, to be able to, you know, take that that intentional approach um, to to kind of, you know, protect you from those things like like most parents, I would imagine, would do. Yeah, yeah. So, like, let's see. So, one thing you have to realize is, like, we came to the States, and this is why I really get excited about, like, crypto, which we could talk about later. It's, like, when we came here, we basically had no money. We had to live with our uncle for, like, a year or so. Yeah. And then before my parents could even move out, we luckily had a really big place, and, like, there was, like, a whole suite downstairs that we could live at. But, like, we came to the States with nothing. Uh, what's it called? And then, basically, my parents split up after, like, a year, maybe. So, we got here second grade. Uh, and then they were split up by like fifth grade. And so it was basically just my mom raising us by herself. Uh, I didn't even realize it just because yeah, there's a weird thing where it's like, one, it's like, we were actually kind of wealthy in Liberia well off, but like being wealthy in Liberia is basically impoverished in America. Like we had a generator, so like we didn't have steady electricity. So like there's all these things that like, we didn't like, even though we were wealthy in Liberia, it's like, it was, it's basically like American poor. And yeah. so like, even though when we came to America, I didn't even realize that we were actually pretty poor, but like, I never realized it because like everything just fell up. It's like, you have TVs, you have video games, like all these things. It's like, Oh, this just feels up to me. It's like, I never realized we were actually pretty poor. And so I got my first job and I was whining, even though I made more than my mom made like her whole life. <laughs> so that, that was like a whole side thing. So it's like, I just never really realized that I was actually poor right. because like, it was just such a juxtaposition coming from like, Hey, you had to like, shower with like heating up the water to like hey there's like a shower that just rains down water and right <laughs> so it's just like yeah so it sounds like, uh, it sounds uh, like that no oh go ahead i was gonna say, it so, sounds yeah. like that immigration um to america was almost sort of a you know a step up in some ways um you know because you know you were you know, like you said, you had like, you know, consistent, you know, like hot running water, you know, you had, we were on a generator in Liberia and, you know, so talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, yeah. when did that realization come into play for you? Yeah. So that's actually going to get, so, well, I'll, I'll get to that. Well, I, get, I think it's honestly just as I got older and just like, as I really had to pay for things on my own, but like part of the reason I brought all that up was to get back to your previous question around like mm -hmm. my relationship with my mom. It's like, when you basically are doing that, like my mom was making, I feel like she was making like 20, 30 K a year and had to raise four kids on her own. And so like, basically all her time was basically stressing out about finances. And so like, and this is a classic immigrant thing where it's like, as immigrant parents, they spend most of their time figuring out finances and they don't spend, they don't have any time left over, not only for themselves, but then they even focus on like the emotional side of things. So it's like, my mom always loved us. It's actually why I like am so into Christmas. Like she, even though we didn't have money, she would always make Christmas like a really big thing, but like, she also didn't make time to like really spend with uh, like our emotional care. Like I couldn't just be like, Hey, I'm upset. And like, talk to her about things. It was just cause like one, I'd feel guilty. Cause I know she's already stressed. She basically worked all night and then comes home and it's like, I have to let her sleep. So it's like, that basically became my thing with my mom where it's like, she was always there and she really cared for us. But for some reason there was this like second layer that I think a lot of immigrant parents face where it's like, they go out of their way to take care of the like base level financial needs. Cause like back home, that was winning. Like basically being able to put food, like that was winning for them back home. But then you come to America and we're, we're wealthier kids. Now we have, we get, we basically get to like the Mark Manson thing where it's like, 
Uh, Bill Gates and the poor person has money problems, but it's just higher quality money problems. And so like we are now focused, like our generation, first generation immigrants, we're focused on the emotional level things that like we are wanting from our parents and they don't even realize that they're not providing that. And so that became the thing with my mom where it's like, I just had to like accept that she didn't know how to do that. And so you can't teach what you don't know. And so I spent a lot of time really, and this is when, remember when I was like super big on vulnerability and stuff like that, there's like learning that and like learning to like, hey, I like, I have to carry her to that. And so like, but like, yeah, so there was like a small time where it's like, as I was trying to figure that out, like, I didn't really get along as much with my mom, even though it's, because it was like this weird thing where it's like, I know how much she cares about me, but like, for some reason, she doesn't really listen to my emotional needs. And it really took me like, lots of books to really figure it out. And then now it's like, everything's perfect. And it's like, understandable. But like, there's like, and I think a lot of immigrant kids are either going through or have gone through that where it's like, your parents are focused on like the basic needs because that was what was important back home. Right. But like they don't realize the American emotional needs part of the pillar that you're seeking here. Right. Right. I can't even imagine the, um, you know, the struggle that that is to be able to try and, you know, sort of, you know, as you put it, teach your mom that or kind of lead her there because, you know, you know, she's working so hard to provide for you, right? You said making 20 or 30 K a year. I mean, to raise four kids as a single mom on, on, on that salary, that is ridiculously tough. And I mean, kudos to your mom for being just such an incredibly strong woman, um, you know, for being able to handle that. But then to add that second layer in that you talked about, which is sort of, you know, the American emotional needs and talk about like privilege to be able to have those <laughs> I know, it's, it's emotional amazing. needs, right? Um, that's a really interesting dynamic that I've never actually heard of in, in that immigrant story. And so thank you for bringing that up. Um, and it sounds like you guys are in a good place now, like you said, that you've- Yeah, yeah, you know, I think it, one of the things is like, one, as I make more money and like honestly just go through and struggle as an adult, like as as you grow up, you start to realize like everyone's basically doing the best they know how, and it's like once you accept that re- rationality, like a lot of things just be more become more clear. And this is why I get this is why I keep saying I want to retire as a teacher because then it's just like how do you get people to know how to do better? Like that's basically comes the game, and that's why it's more interesting for me because it's like like even the worst people like the road to hell is paved with good intention. Like even Hitler was like deeply religious from what I hear, and like he thought he was doing the right thing or something like that. So it's like. Everyone is thinking they're doing the right thing. It's this weird thing. This actually gets into like one of the mental models I really want to talk about. Yeah. But, yeah. That's, I mean, so your, your mission is not mission, but you said, you kind of said one thing in there, which is you want to just say it again for me. I want to make sure that we get it clearly. Uh, yeah. I mean, as I think about my high level mission, like I see a lot of core pillars in my life that really matter to me. So health, wealth, love, and happiness. Like I want to just die happy. I want to die with friends surrounding me. Like, I think if you can do that, you kind of won the game of life. Uh, and so it's like, I also have all these things I'm interested in. I'm interested in money. I'm interested in like tech and all these things. And so it's like, I think like, as I've been really trying to put it together, like my mission is basically to use technology to improve people's health, their wealth, their love and happiness. I think if you can do that, like people are going to be fine. <laughs> Sorry. have <Had> verb. <laughs> if you can do that, people are going to be fine. And like, I think in general, like communication is like the best technology we have, but like that, that's basically it. It's like, how can I improve people's lives? And like, the first thing is like, I, once I figure out how to do it for myself, then I can figure out how to replicate it. So it's like, as I figure out emotional, like, uh, like maturity for myself, I can then like start to like lead people down that path. Like one of the things that I joke around with Christine, we have this new saying, it's called a uh, positive uh, reinforcement is the way. 
And it's basically like you realize like what you want to try and do is like you can't you can't push a string. I think there's like a Ty Lopez phrase or something like that where it's like most people try to like force you to go in the direction you want. And what you have to do is actually just be a really bright beacon that like draws people in. Yeah. Like, and I realized that like because Ty Lopez actually, even though I feel like he basically a lot of, did a lot of scammy things, what he did for me at least was he got me to read two books a month. And like that was really great in terms of my education because he flashed the fancy cars and things, but then he led with like it got you to do the thing. And it's like I do I saw the same thing with like Gary Vee. It's like if you just basically be that bright beacon, you will lead people down that path. And so it's just like try and pull, lead with positive reinforcement instead of trying to push people to where you want. It's it's just easier and you don't have to sacrifice the relationship if you go that route. So I love that. Positive reinforcement. Lead with positive reinforcement. And you're right because that analogy of the string, if you push, if, if I, I'm imagining a string on my desk right now, if I, if I was to push it, it would just slink up to the to the lead part, right? But if I pull it from the lead, right, the behind's going to follow. So be that, be the lead end of the string and, and pull it instead of trying to push it from behind. Um, and I think, you know, leading is the positivity, whereas pushing would be the negativity or, or brute force. Um, so I really love that analogy. Um, you know, we talked about a little bit what it was like, your relationship with your mom and, you know, what it was like for her to come over. But what was it like for you? I mean, I can't imagine that it was an easy transition, you know, um, seven years that old. Was fun. Second I was having a blast. Like really, for me, it was just like because I'm a curious kid at heart. So, so multiple things. One, I'm really shy in terms of like people, but in terms of everything else, I'm like super curious. So, like my earliest memory as a kid was like we were back in Liberia, we were throwing some kind of Christmas party, and like I was super shy to go out and like really see everyone else. And this is a party we were throwing, but like I remember being so sad and staying in my room while everyone else had fun. And so that's really shaped my life in terms of making me feel like with people, I need to always put myself out there. But then in terms of everything else, like I've always been super curious and just explore things. Like I'm the weirdo who's like, I will see, I want to see every perspective. And actually I, after I took a, there's a 16 personalities, like my personality is called ENTP. And so it actually like defined that like I, I prospect different ideas kind of and mm-hmm. just jump to all of them like before I judge them. So like that's kind of how that group of people describes me. Uh, so yeah, I think it's just, for me, it was just all super cool, like just new experiences and fun. That's incredible. And you're the second, um, person that I've had on here. Ironically enough, the other guy who I just actually recorded a podcast episode with before you was named was Rob. And he also <laughs> described himself as having an innate curiosity. He's doing this project where he is, uh, talking to 10,000 people for one-on-one for an hour at a time. And he's six years into it, and he's on episode number 4,700, or person number 4,700. Um, so it's 4,700 people that he's talked to for an hour each. And um, he's got an innate curiosity to him. And I think that it's incredible because that's something that I've also noticed about you is that you have this innate curiosity. Um, but to learn about yourself um, first and foremost, and I think that you have a curiosity about other people because, you know, you see it as not just learning about them, but also it might teach you something about yourself as well. So how do you deploy that curiosity sort of in the projects that you're working on? Uh, so, yes, this is now where it's like, so one of the things I realized that I do is like, I go on these long winded tangents because I haven't really developed the skill to like really compress it yet. But like, if you just follow along, you'll see how I'm trying to get back to this question. So it's like, I think what I've realized for me to even get to where I want to like describing that thing, like there's two 
basic things you kind of like have to learn about how I think. And it's like my two favorite mental models that I'm playing with right now. And so like one, I, I'm, I'm, I'm branding as like the stadium of perspectives. Uh, and so I'll walk you through. And another one's just like the slinky of progress. <laughs> I, I like to be fun with things. I'm, I, I'm a very uh, playful person at heart. Yes. Uh, so like the very first one is uh, basically like when you first start, so this is the stadium of uh, perspectives once. It's like when you first start thinking as just a person in the world, what ends up happening is like you're going along in life, la, 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 la. And then something comes along that basically it's like you kind of see the world as like one painting, like one perspective of the world. And something comes along that basically says this is wrong. And it's like this disconfirming belief that's like where it's like you also think it's true. So like what you're struggling with now, it's like you have this cognitive dissonance. How do you basically ignore that part of the world? And it's like, I'm just going to pretend it doesn't exist. And you see a lot of people in the world doing that. So there's a whole group of people who just like when they see disconfirming evidence, it's like they just ignore it. Or you now have to basically accept this cognitive dissonance. And then you at that point, you create cognitive duality in your mind. You accept that, hey, for something I'm looking at, there can be two paintings of it like there's two perspectives of looking at this thing. And uh, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he calls this paradigms. This is where I kind of first learned this. So it's like, now you come in the world, there's two paradigms. Along the way, you basically realize like, most things are just like, like this, where it's like, there's two ways of looking at it. It's like, you kind of see the world now as like a coin, where there's two sides of the same coin. And so there's cognitive duality, I think it's like the fancy word for it. Uh, sorry if I'm, I'm gonna use a lot of fancy words because there's fancy people who spend lifetimes like learning these and <laughs> I just steal from them. But uh, so now you got like cognitive duality. So it's like the world is like a coin and like, or every perspective is like a coin. Then as you keep going, what ends up happening is you will run into basically what are mental models. So it's like you're, it's, it moves from like, Hey, this is a coin to entire, it's an actually an entire stadium. And what it is, is like, there's different mental models to look at this same coin. Like take something like business. There's different mental models to look at business from. Uh, and so like you have this mental model over here, you have like things like uh, cognitive biases are different ones. You have just multiple perspectives of looking at this same coin where it's like all these people at a 360 degree looking at this same thing and making judges, judgments from their perspectives. And what ends up happening, and actually this is perfect like with this whole screen thing, it's like what you realize is that for some random reason, some people who are over here, let's say Democrats, Republicans, talking about the same thing, disagree and hate each other, there's weird things that they all agree on. And so those end up becoming the principles. So it's like, there's principles that even people who hate each other still agree on. So like, when you learn then it's like, okay, well, if I don't know what's going on in the circle, I don't know what's true, I'm just gonna start with the things that the people who hate each other learn, like basically agree on. Those are principles, Seven Habits really covers this well, but it's like, then you got the principle. What then you realize, it's like, you can then take these principles in each discipline and realize, every discipline has its own set of principles that you can then bring on the bear on an idea. And so it's like, when I look at ideas, what I try to do is like, I basically take it from like, uh, I look at all the different mental models that like basically examine that thing. Like right now, and I'll walk you through how I'm doing that for marketing. Cause that's the thing I'm trying to learn right now. Like there's different mental models examining it. And then you also go back to other disciplines that you've been in and then see how they still relate to this discipline. Because like, the way I look at it, it's like engineering and like design are kind of like two sides. Like actually, so one thing I realized it's that I used to think it was like you go to a different stadium. And what I realize now is that each seat in the stadium is another stadium all of its own. And like at a global level, we're all looking at the world with our own little disciplines, marketing here in B12, accounting here in A17, yep. engineering here, psychology here. Like we're all looking at the world from our own stadiums, shaping the world and the world shaping us back. 
And so, like, that's kind of how I look at it now. So that's just as a side note. But, like, back to what I was saying, like, if you look at something like engineering and design, because, like, I was a front-end developer, and, like, it kind of forced me to, like, play both hats where it's, like, half of my time was spent designing, half of my time was spent engineering. And so it's, like, I kind of got to see what both disciplines were doing. And what you realize is that they're both doing the same things just from opposite perspective. In engineering, what you do is you communicate to create. So you write code, you write instructions for a machine, and that creates all these fancy apps you want to see in the world. Right. In design, you create, you make a beautiful design to communicate a message. And it's like you're doing the same thing. And you're problem solving in the same way. At a high level, basically, engineering is all about like creative solution so it's like someone says hey create an algorithm to like get to the the fastest route from here to walmart or something like that it's like that me as an engineer i have to solve that in a creative fashion whereas design is actually more about like the structure it's like hey you have this this mess or even a blank screen which is just pure chaos and you have to basically add structure so alignment and like uh, symmetry all these like structural things that people don't even think about with design right basically so it's like they're the same thing, just like, it's basically like two people passing by each other, but going to the same place. And it's like, you realize like lots of disciplines are basically doing that same thing. And that's why it's like that stadium view where it's like, we're all looking at the same thing, different perspectives, but then it's like, it's reversing back. So so talk to me that's basically a little bit about how you have experienced that stadium of perspectives in your own life. Can you give me an example of, of, you know, how you've experienced that? I mean, that's basically now everywhere. Like now that is my prevailing mental model for everything. So it's like, it's very prevalent in web three, but like one thing I'm seeing it really well now in is uh, marketing and like, so now I would go into another mental model and I'm, I'm trying to learn to like be very concise and not just ramble on about these things. But like, I'm just realizing like, when it comes to like, uh, well, yeah, let me know if you want me to dive into it or if I should just uh, yeah, no, talk to me, talk to me, because I, I want to understand how you're using the stadium perspectives mental model to look at marketing. And I think we may have touched on this at our dinner when we last hung out, but I'm curious to hear uh, more about it. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things I've learned, and there's this really cool book called Demand Side Sales that gave me like the mental model there. Uh, and this is why I said, like, you kind of need to understand that. I just see everything in mental models. Uh, but, like, demand-side sales and, like, the way it works, it's, like, you kind of want to think about, like, what ends up happening is every now and then you'll see a customer standing at, like, a river. And it's, like, you see them sad for some reason and you assume they want to go to the other side. So, like, as engineers, like, this is that discipline, we are just trained to, like, hey, I will make you this boat to get you to the other side of the river. And we will spend a lot of our time figuring out how to, like, make a really fast boat like uh, a boat that like is aerodynamic. Like I can build anything you want to get you to this fucking, the other side of the river. Like that's basically what we get trained to. And then what ends up happening when you basically go into what's demand side sales, where it's like, you're thinking about the customers, you realize not everyone wants to get to the other side of the river. Some people want you to engineer a bridge because they want to take their friends along the way. Other people, so like, and this gets into that, someone had this cool thing where it's like pay system. So there's practical, actual, social, emotional people. So just depending on people's personality types. But like other people, they actually would rather have a plane because the river doesn't even represent anything. It just represents the fact that they want to explore the world. And this is just one of the many things in their way. So for those people, you're better off building a plane. Then there's a whole group of other people where it's like, they're annoyed that some idiots coming around building bridges and boats when they just want to experience the river and you'd be better off making them a chair and selling that to them. 
And so like the whole demand side sale is basically like helping me reframe my mental model of like, hey, I'm not just gonna go build something. I can build anything. Like now I'm at the point where as an engineer, I can build any product. It's really understanding, hey, what is there already demand in the world for? Is there actually demand in the world for more boats? Or are there people who want planes and people who want chairs and people who want bridges who aren't being satisfied? And then going after those markets. You know what I'm trying to say? Because like everyone else is making boats because that's the obvious first thing that comes to mind, make a boat. And it's like really learning to pay attention to the customer, see what they really care about. Like what is the job that they're trying to fulfill with whatever your product is? And it's it's actually really got me to reframe a lot of my stuff uh, that I was doing some of my side projects. And like, it's helping me understand that like, the core function of a business is actually sales. And where I thought it was something else, now I realize it's just like, hey, understanding what's the real demand in the world and then fulfilling that demand in a way that actually people want. Because then everything else is just communicating it. So like that's like a perfect example of how I'm thinking about this whole stadium perspective. I think it is a really perfect example. Yeah, because it's a prime example. If you look at business. What was that? No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say, if you look at business, all it is, it's like half the people on the stadium are supply side. So these basically the people building the stuff. Half the people on the stadium are demand sides, people doing user research, marketing. And it's like people don't move from their seat in the stadium. Most yeah. engineers stay in their seat and they never learn what marketers are thinking. And most marketers never come back to the engineers and really think about how they have to build it. It's like, but you learn a lot by jumping seats in the stadiums and seeing what other sides are doing. It's like, if I'm looking at you, but then I can also see what the person who's sitting behind you sees. I might find out maybe there's like an alien on your back. And that gives me a whole different perspective and like why they seem so shocked back there instead of me just judging. It's like, why are they being weird? Dan looks wide from here. You know what I mean? Absolutely. No, I, I completely understand what you're saying. And I've experienced it through entrepreneurs that I've talked to um, and even in my own self, you know, projects that I've started um, or, uh, you know, entrepreneurs that I've talked to and businesses that they've started. Um, one of the, Best pieces of advice that I ever got from an entrepreneur. His name is Mike Glaycar, um, and he started a um, a company called uh, True. It's actually escaping me right now. I can't remember it, but basically it was a sales technology. And before he even um, started creating it, he created like a wireframe of the, it was an app tech product. And he gave it out to like 50 salespeople that he knew who he thought would be his end customer. And he got feedback from them to then iterate that wireframe and actually decide whether or not he was gonna go out and create the product. He listened to who his customers were going to be and figured out what they actually wanted. Now, did the second iteration, you know, was that the be all end all? No, it wasn't. It took several other forms before it hit any sort of modicum of success. But it was a really great piece of advice that I learned early on in my career when I was like 22, 23 years old, um, that, you know, you need to be able to kind of put your ear to the ground and listen to what it is that people actually need and want in order to then, you know, create something or iterate what you've already created to be able to meet that demand. So I completely resonate with what you're, uh, what you're speaking about there and that mental model. Um, how has that mental model played into um, your own personal experience, either with the side project that you're working on right now or with your new position? And, and why don't you actually tell us a little bit about that new position um, as well? Ah, uh, yeah. So for the new position, uh, so right now I, I joined a friend, we raised some venture capital and we're working in Web3. Uh, if you don't know what Web3 is, you're living under a rock, but <laughs> I, I can walk people through how that works in a general thing. Uh, but and also it's really just, uh, it's affecting my personal life. It's just like, 
the mental model of like, hey, just different perspectives really just helps me see why people do things that seem crazy to me. Like before that, people just seem crazy and it's like, okay, what's going on? And it's more just like, hey, they're seeing this thing from a different angle. So now I have to go step into their angle if I want to understand it. And then I have to like bring them back to my angle using words that align with or associate with whatever they think those words are. Uh, and like it's, and then you get into like thinking like, hey, what's the jobs to be done of being a boyfriend? Like, what am I trying to fulfill here? Like, what demand am I fulfilling for my girlfriend? Like, you, you can really take some of these mental models to, like, like because I let myself go from different discipline to discipline, like, I don't see a mental model as having to be stuck in business. I can take it to my relationships. I can take it to my health. I can take it everywhere. It's like, don't let, don't get into the discipline silo. Like, right. you can take it anywhere. It's just knowledge. What's the so thing that's that you've kind of learned how- from being able to consider and step into other people's perspectives to understand where they're coming from? What's the biggest thing that you've learned from that? Uh, everyone's doing the best they know how. Uh, that's basically it. And then focus on incentives. <laughs> people move based on incentives. If you build bad incentives, people... And I mean, that's basically all Web3 does. It's like we're now... We went from like, hey, how can we make ads to like, how can we make networks and incentives? And it's like we're tackling higher level problems at a, at the, as the internet basically. So, yeah, absolutely. What, and I want to get into web three and sort of the community based, um, you know, uh, world that we're now living in, um, and starting to live in. I want to really kind of dig into that, but I want to go back to something that you just said there, which is that, you know, you learn that people are doing the best that they can. Um, what, what, how has that how has that realization changed how you either treat people or communicate with people on a daily basis? I mean, this gets back to what I said about like the pulling people forward because like before when it's like you're not trying, then it's like I'm gonna try to force you to do my way of doing things. Yeah. Then when I'm like, okay, this person is trying, okay, well if they are trying, then I have to lead with more kindness and empathy. Because like if I'm trying my hardest and then someone's telling me I'm still shit, like that's going to be annoying. You know what I mean? Right. And so it's like, if I just assume the person's trying their hardest, I have to go towards, instead of trying to pull, push the string, I have to try and pull the string where it's like, I basically just have to kind of show them, Hey, there's either like through mental models and thinking about it. Like, that's why I always start with those first. Right. Cause like I, a lot of times it's like the mental model you're in really sh- like this stadium perspective thing. is like, it really shapes how you think why a lot of things seem stupid. Like think about the whole sales versus like, engineering thing now like a lot of people on this call who are marketers are like yeah this makes sense all the time but there's a lot of engineers who's like oh my god this guy just changed my world and they're like me where it's like this stuff never made sense and i'm sure like if you ask an engineer there's things you're doing that's just dumb and they'll be like this is just the way it is and it's like so you basically just like assume everyone's doing the best they know how and it's like focus on pulling them because like the other way you can do it but like people move away from pain and they move towards pleasure and when you try to force people, you become the pain. So even if you get them to do the, uh, the thing, you then lose the relationship. This is true whether it's your kids or the person. So it's like, if you want to keep the relationship and get them to do the thing, basically positive reinforcement. It takes more work, but like it's the way to go. It is the way. It is the way. I, I love it. Because two things there, right? So one, you know, being able to have the empathy to realize that somebody is putting in their effort, right? And if they're putting in the effort and you're just going to berate them still, right? It seems like common sense, but at the same time, you know, we don't think about it sometimes, right? So to acknowledge that somebody is giving in the effort to do whatever it is, right? You know, make progress. Um, let's just call it making progress, right? Because at the end of the day, mm-hmm. that's what a lot of us are trying to do. Um, it kind of also brings up another uh 
mental framework that I've been working and operating in that I learned earlier this year, which is the idea that you as you are right now are already enough. You don't need to do anything more to be worthy or, you know, you right now are already enough because you as you are are the person that can go do the things that you, you know, want to do. But you don't need to achieve more, be more, do more in order to, you know, be enough. You're already there. Right. And it's that kind of platform that I learned and that that mental framework that I learned from uh, Stephen Bartlett, who is an incredible um, entrepreneur and wrote a book that I actually talked to you about called Happy Sexy Millionaire. Um, And that mental (laughs) model is the one that um, really is kind of the platform, the culmination of, you know, his book. Um, And so I, I think I think that that really feeds into what you were saying, which is, you know, if you realize that people are trying the best that they can and they're putting in the effort, then the only logical next thing to do to both keep the relationship with them and also try to support them them. get correct into to to move in progress is to lead with positive reinforcement and it seems like we're we're kind of talking about a you know something that everybody should know yet it seems oftentimes not enough people treat (laughs) with that kindness and with that positive reinforcement so to understand you know why positive reinforcement works so much better than you know whether it's beratement or negative reinforcement, et cetera, um, I think is really important because it kind of puts an exclamation point on the idea that people just need to be kinder and be more empathetic to other people if they're putting in the effort. It's also how you make money. Like, I, this is where it's like, I like that I, like, I've kind of like gotten to the point where I try to think about these things in multiple dimensions where it's like, everything I'll think about is, is both sides. So it's like, I'll think about this. Okay, what's the emotionally right thing to do and it also what's like the selfish way to look at it it's like remember how i said like when engineering and design are kind of like passing by each other like when you look at it and you see okay they can work in both ways like this is what i'm saying with this demand side sales thing but like focusing on like the progress someone's making and then communicating empathetically to them you make money because you're satisfying their need in a way that they understand so it's like I don't even need people to do this for the right reasons. I really don't care. I'd rather people do the right thing for the wrong reason because, like, I still get the progress I want. So it's like, I, because there's going to be people who listen to this podcast and they're just like, eh, that's too fluffy for me. This will make you money. Trust me, this will make you money. Right. Mm, interesting. Because, you know, so whether, so you don't care whether or not people, you know, do the right thing for the right reasons. You just want them to do the right thing. Well, it's not even that because you, what you have to realize, this becomes this weird complexity game that you have to think about with people, as, at least as I'm trying to learn about people. There's at least 16 different types of personalities, or if you like big five, like five different person. Like there's the reason the whole ENTP thing, like you can mix and match like 16 ways and yeah. then you can add, like the people in the personality studies discipline, that chair, they basically are looking at us and they're like, these people are so weird and there's like so many ways to look at them. But like they all agree that there's lots of different types of people. And so what you have to then realize is like each of these different types of people are basically coming at the world from a different direction where it's like what I see is north, the other person sees is south because that's the direction they're coming from. Remember what the whole right. coding to create versus creating the code, the like, so it's like or communicating to create versus creating to communicate. Like it's kind of like that, but like on steroids with a matrix of 16 minimum different right. things. So it's like, then you have to realize like everyone's going to have different associations with different words. And like, that's a whole different thing, which I'm not skilled at yet, but over time I'll just try to like learn, like how do certain people associate different words? So it's like, what I may see as like good or bad. That's like my subjective judgment from my seat right. in the stadium that I'm used to. Other people don't have those same associations and judgment. And so it's like, I have to learn to speak to every different type of person in this stadium. And so it's like, 
that's why it's like I, I would try to remove my judgment of good or bad. It's just like I'm trying to get you to this direction. And then I'm trying to like basically change the words and phrasing because I know you'll have a different association with one word than I do just to like kind of nudge you in that direction. So that, that's kind of how I look at it. When you say that you're trying to move people in that direction, what's, what's the direction that you're trying to move them in? Well, no, so this is just a general framework because then I can apply this to any direction. Like if I care about getting a friend elected, I can do it for that. Like this is kind of like the whole Gary Vee thing where it's like you kind of figure out the machine, then you can apply it to wherever you want. So like right now, I'm really just figuring out the process to get people to a direction. And a lot of it is actually not trying to get them to a direction. This is stepping out of the engineering mindset and more going to like, what is the direction they want to go in? And then just communicating how they can get there. You, you basically go from... Uh, what's it called? Salesperson trying to convince them to coach trying to help them make progress. Like that, that's basically it. Cause like you can't get people to do things they don't want to do. Even if I put a gun to your head, some people will just say, shoot me. Yeah. I love that. You can't, you can't, you know, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. Correct. Somebody amended this though. And they said, you can salt the oats though. Yep. It's basically like if you want people to learn, what you don't, you don't try to force them to learn. What you do is you create a thirst for knowledge. You you basically make them curious. You make them very interested, and then they will learn on their own. You you, it's kind of like this is why this whole demand side sales thing is really interesting for me. It's like the whole there's the Gordon Gecko thing where he's like try to sell me this pen, and everyone's like, oh, I can like basically all the features of a pen, and he's like, imagine if I said, hey, I will give you ten thousand dollars if you write your name right now you will buy the fucking pen. Sorry, sorry. You will buy the pen for me. <laughs> like you, you basically have to create demand for whatever it is you yeah. want. This is why I'm trying to like really learn this stuff. Like it's like there's people in the marketing stadium privacy where they realize this is it. Like create demand and people will come. So like that's, but that's a higher level. Right now I'm just trying to learn how like what people demand. I think higher level becomes like how do I create demand? But maybe that's next year's episode. Yeah. No, I mean, we're going to have a future episode too, because this has been incredibly insightful so far. I want to transition this conversation to something that I know you're deeply passionate about. And you've actually name dropped it a couple times, Web3. And I know you've said that um, if you don't know what Web3 is, you're living under a rock. I have a high level understanding of what Web3 is. A lot of people, I want to say majority of the population, don't. They have no idea what Web3 is or they don't call it Web3. So, and I want to get deeper into, you know, your specific um, role and application of Web3 in cryptocurrency as well as, um, you know, sort of in DeFi, which is decentralized finance, uh, as we uh, talked about and I learned in our last conversation. But explain to me, let, let's take it block by block, right? So let's kind of like <laughs> larger scope and then let's go deeper and deeper. And let's try to keep it as simple and concise as possible just so that, um, you know, for, for timing's sake, but also so that we can we can you know give people a crisp picture of you know that that each each building block if that makes sense. So explain to me first building block what is Web three? Yeah, so I mean I can yeah there's a lot here, but basically all it is is just like some person uh, like 13 years ago figured out this like really complicated math pro- computer science math problem called the three generals problem. And it, like the, the problem is like this, like it was always existing in like computer science. Like how do you get a group of people who don't know, can't trust each other to uh, kind of like coordinate and do the same thing together? It's like, how do I, like imagine we're all generals trying to attack a villain, like something, 
we basically all have to agree to attack together. Otherwise, we die. If, I, if I'm the only one attacking, then I will die by myself. So it's like, but I can't trust that. And I know one of you guys is actually nefarious. So it's like he basically came up with some fancy computer science math to like solve this problem. Once you solve that problem, what you realize is then you can apply that to like all the stuff we regularly have in computer science. So you can apply that to a database. And so he made this crypto network similar to like LimeWire or like Pirate Bay or whatever. It's just like, it's a decentralized network that no one owns, but like everyone, peer-to-peer network is like the best way that uses this like math thing. And he called his, uh, what's it called? Proof of work consensus mechanism. So it's basically like, it's this coordination way to like get a bunch of computers to agree on a certain thing. And this thing they decided to agree on was a database. And all the database did was track money, AKA Bitcoin. Once you did that, people then brought it to like, okay, well, we don't have to just track money in this. So it's like, like I said, so it's like first layer, it's like, hey, we have this peer-to-peer network. Second layer is like, we figured out this fancy math to like get all the peers in the network to agree on the state of this database. And if you can do that, then you can add money. Because uh, everyone, if you, money is just the important thing in general in life. If you don't realize that part, then I, 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 there's a lot of pyramids I have to build up for you there. Uh, so then we realize we don't even have to just do money. We can do code in general. And now you're basically at the place. Once you can do code in general, you basically start to re-architect the entire internet. Because if you think about it, like the internet is just a bunch of computers sending text messages to each other. And so the first phase of the internet, like the web two, is, which is what we are right now, Actually, the very first phase of the internet was just computers sending text messages, and we were just watching them. So, like, you'd go on to, like, AOL, I think was what it was called. You'd go on, and you could just see what was – it's basically like reading a newspaper. You, you couldn't do anything. Next phase was, like, text messages that you as a user can also participate. So, that's Facebook. Like, you go to Google.com. It sends a message to the Google server. Google server sends that text message back to you. Your browser then loads up a fancy web page. Same thing happens on Facebook, everywhere else, except now Facebook is letting you – Add, edit and add stuff as well. So now you're part of the network. You're not just a viewer or participant. Now with this third layer of like, hey, the network also has this database that's like easily managed. And now you basically can now create digital assets. So like the first one being Bitcoin, then after that Ethereum, then like every coin, Dogecoin, everything. Once people realize you can make a digital asset, they, they decided to go crazy and went reckless with it. <laughs> so like, so then you, you now basically have a, a, we're now getting into the phase where it's like, hey, we can all now have assets on the internet because you, you couldn't before. If I had an image, so that's becomes NFTs now, but if I had an image, I can own that. If I had a thing in my bank account that says I have $10, I don't technically own that. Like my bank is the one managing that. Right. So like, we, we basically did that. So like, that's like the, the first, that's basically at the core of Web3 is like, we solve a problem that lets us have digital assets. We also are solving network coordination, which is like, now you can have a network that you just now have to focus on incentives. So it's like, how do you get this network to operate? So there's multiple layers to get like a network like Bitcoin to operate. So you have like the physical layer, which is like, how do you get a, millions of people around the world to basically run a computer, like a physical computer somewhere. And so you reward them with Bitcoin and you have this fancy smancy game called mining where you basically have people like running computers that are proving that things are happening. And it's just basically like a lot of fanciness around like, hey, I need people to manage, run computers, and then I need the database to always be up and like connections to it to always be there. Then I also have to like verify to like cryptography, public key cryptography that like every account in there is the same. 
So it's like, you're basically just doing a bunch of coordination games. We call them consensus mechanisms. And so that's like the first core thing of like Web3. It's like, there's really three core things that Web3 brings to the internet. It's like coordination, verification, and because of those two, you can have digital assets. The verification is basically like, anyone can see what everyone does on the on the blockchain. So like I can, any 12 year old can log in to like a block explorer and see every transactions I've ever done since I created my wallet. And same for anyone everywhere. It's like people try to basically send money, like do illegal activities and like the FBI just loaded the blockchain and it's like, you're done. So it's like, it was early on, they didn't realize it was a dumb idea, but like now it's just, you're stupid if you're trying to do illegal activity on at least like a public blockchain, like uh, Bitcoin. So like those three things combined basically are the value prop of Bitcoin because now like our crypto web three way, it's like now you're going to have networks where the everything you do is now a digital asset. So it's like you take it from money to then you can now have pictures and images, NFTs, digital assets. Uh, you can now have even other things like your profile name as a digital asset. Like I, I, I got a profile name uh, the other day. Like it's mine. No one can take, like I can go to jail and no one can take it from me because like right. the, the cryptography behind these digital networks is the same cryptography we use for like nuclear codes. So it's like, if you can crack this, you, you have bigger things you should attack than trying to take people's Bitcoins. Like <laughs> you, you basically need a quantum computer, which Google's working on, but we can then just upgrade things. But like quantum computers is like the, as far as I know, the way to attack these things, but don't quote me on this stuff. This is above my pay grade uh, as a developer. I'm, I'm not this talented. So, so let me, let me uh, pause you for a second and let me just kind of, yeah recap a little bit and see if I'm in the same ballpark as you are right now because you are so well versed in this it's incredible and by the way you're my favorite type of podcast guest where I can ask one question and then you just riff on it I love it and the level and depth that you're speaking of this you can just tell that you are without a doubt an expert on web3 on crypto and on you know just that space as a whole I, I would say i'm not an expert i just know stuff <laughs> well you are an expert in that you know i actually don't like the word expert because in my opinion right when you if you're an expert right if you're too the word expert is subjective right so relative to me you are an expert because i don't know that much relative to my okay. parents I'm an expert because I know more than they do, right? I'm at least two steps. I define an expert as somebody who is two steps ahead of the other person in that specific niche or subject matter that we're talking about. Yeah. You're probably like a hundred steps ahead of I, ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll, we'll, we'll catch up. It's not that many steps again. So to kind of recap, you said that the first step was what, you know, kind of solving the three generals problem, which was coordination. Then once you could get these, you know, computers and really people to agree that all of this one thing was happening, right, that Bitcoin was worth something, right, and that this was happening and the computer network there also verified that, right, then you have the second step, which is verification, that this Bitcoin is now verified by everyone and recognized that I own X amount of Bitcoin, where Correct. as every person can do that. Right. And so now it's the verification of, you know, if I have a public wallet, right, I, it can literally be verified that I own, let's just call it, you know, one Bitcoin or one, one Bitcoin ETH. And I Correct. as opposed to now where I have it and I own it, nobody else can touch it ever. Correct. You can't tell me how much is in your bank account because you can't prove that to me. I can go download the Bitcoin network and I can prove to you how much Bitcoin. Right. Your bank, a banker can just go erase it and you wouldn't even know. I don't actually know that I have the money in my bank account. As far as I know, it's being off traded somewhere else. It's just a fake number in there in the user interface. Like it doesn't actually mean that it's right. there. 
<laughs> and you find out very quickly when you try to withdraw more than a certain amount that it is also not yours money too. It's interesting because you the way that you put that is how is actually the opposite way that most people think about Bitcoin or think about just cryptocurrency in general, right? So the general consensus that I've heard from most people that talk about cryptocurrency, and these are the naysayers around it, and originally I was too. I thought it was a fad, but that's just because I didn't have a deeper understanding of it. Now through conversations with you, as well as just the high-level research that I've done on my own, I understand that it's actually much, much more, and it is not going away. If anything, it's going to continue to you know, be in use and you know, may or may not become the primary way that we are communicating. Web three will be, I don't know what, um, what yeah, we'll, we'll get to the rest of web three. Cause like, like right. I said, the first thing is just money and you kind of have to get that, right. but then you realize everything is an asset. Yeah. Everything you do online. So, but we'll get to what that. Would you say, what would you say to people who think about, cause most people in my opinion, think about, you know, the real thing that I have is, is physical money, right? Cause I can touch it. And I think the digital aspect for, Let's just say my parents' generation and above, right? I think the digital aspect to them is really difficult to grasp that this thing is actually the real asset that you can prove that you have versus what you're saying, the money in the bank is actually something that you give the money to the bank and they go do God knows what with it, right? They lend it out to people through loans to get mortgages they and buy a house. They lend it to, you know, they, they invest in it to try and make more money, et cetera, right? So what would you say to people so, who are in, you know, sort of naysayers? How do you how do you get somebody to sort of convert? And this actually kind of leads back to uh, our previous part of the conversation from a yeah, psychological standpoint. How do you pull people on that string, right, and lead them from being a naysayer of crypto because they don't understand it to actually adopting it? You're actively doing it with me, actually, which is really interesting. No, no, no. So talk to me. Is, this is, I realized, so at a high level, it's like, it's back to like the pay system. There's like, each of us have four parts of our brains, like the practical, the actionable, the social, and like the emotional. And it's like, as long as I just appeal to all four along the way in whatever story I'm telling, like I will convince you along the way and I'll basically bring you along. I've also realized, so like at the very, like the emotional level, it's just like, for all my friends, I just have to talk about the, the money I'm making. Like the fact that I got a profile name and then what, a month ago, I made $25,000 from getting the profile name because in blockchain networks, when you invest in them, you also then get ownership rights in the form of tokens that also then have value. Like that becomes something where it's like, okay, now they stop ignoring me. Like as soon as I told Christine, I, I got that. She stopped laughing at my NFT things. She's like, okay, whatever. Like just keep doing your NFT things. It's like a different conversation. <laughs> so it's like, it's basically like you just, for the emotional side, it's like you just lead with the money. The next part is like the social side, which is like, we're now moving to the place where all these digital networks that we made, like the previous generation of digital networks, so Facebook, Twitter, all of them is basically, it's owned by a small group of people and like we're the ones doing all the work. With blockchain network, the network rewards the participants. So like the consensus message that like, we basically, we let the robots take care of all the coordination and they also take care of all the verification. So right. now we can basically take the ownership, the digital assets, and give it only to people who are actually contributing in that work because now it's not like the founder is doing that much work. You, you basically, the robot's doing all the work that like, like if you think about something like Coinbase versus like a decentralized exchange, like SushiSwap, like the code's doing everything Coinbase would do. And it's like, well, if that's happening, then just give the ownership to people who are actually doing work, which is like people providing money into the platform so that other people can trade. And that's basically what ends up happening. And we're going to do that for everything. So like I said, with a profile name, we're doing that with ENS. Uh, and this is kind of what we're working on with them, where it's like, 
as you just start to own more of the assets, because like I said, robots are taking care of coordination, robots are taking care of verification. Cause like, right. if you look at like, think about a network like uh, Uber, all that's happening is there's Uber, the company in the middle, which is basically a group of people writing code. And then everyone else is actually doing the work because like me as a user, I'm going in, I'm talking to the code. You as a driver, you're going in, you're talking to the code and the code sits in the middle. And then for some reason, we basically decided like, instead of us who are actually participating all the time, owning that code and making the money from it, we're just going to let a company who was the original creator of it own it. And it's like, that's kind of dumb. And so now we're making these networks where you just get rid of the company. You basically write a bunch of code and you have to do a bunch of like computer science stuff to make it work. And it's really hard. But like, then you basically get a network where it's like, you're just giving it to the drivers and you're just giving it to the users and they own everything. And that's basically what we're about to do, but for everything. Like, because what you're going to realize is like, a lot of things are actually just networks where people are trying to solve coordination. People are trying to solve verification and transparency. And it's like, once you basically copy what people did for Bitcoin to like other networks, like they're doing this in video. Sorry, I'm going to get off tangent because like, no, yeah, so is, it's like, no, this is great. Keep so yeah. going, please. Yeah. So that, that's the thing. And so now I'm, in Poland, I'm appealing to people who care about like social. So it's like, that's like the social people where it's like, there's a right. group of people who care about like, Hey, I want to not just help myself. I want to help the world. Then you basically have like the, the action people is basically like, hey, you're going to miss out on money. <laughs> this is money. This is every like you kind of appeal to like the business model side of it where it's like, hey, this stuff like there's this book called Seven Powers and they talk about uh, like counter positioning is one of the things where it's like you basically you do something that it's basically impossible for the incumbents to do. So like if you look at something like NFTs where it's like I own the piece of content I put on the Internet. And like, I get all the value capture from it. Right now, what we're doing is like, I post a piece of content on Instagram. They get all the value capture. They can then sell my, the attention I'm getting for that to advertisers. Like what happens when you make a decentralized Instagram where like the use, the creators are getting all the more of a cut for Instagram to compete. They now have to get users a cut. Like it becomes hard for them to go to their board and be like, Hey guys, we're going to cut half of our business model. Like, like right. maybe Mark Zuckerberg can convince them, but like, it's going to be hard. And it's going to be a lot of companies that can't do that. And you're going to get that with everything. All these, go ahead. I was going to say, what, what does that practically look like? So you said, you mentioned a decentralized Instagram. Give me a little bit more of a clear picture, clarity on what that looks like. Well, go back to our decentralized Uber as gamble. Like if, if you follow that, it's like, imagine a decentralized Uber. Cause all it is in the middle is just a bunch of code which we don't necessarily, like someone, Lyft shows that you can just recreate Uber. And then after that, you just basically follow the same principles you learn with Bitcoin and Ethereum and Doge. People are making networks, decentralized network for dumb things like Dogecoin. If we take extra time, we can figure it out for something useful like Uber. Like it's not that hard. It's just people haven't attacked it yet because like what we're learning, it's it's very hard, the, the governance part, that's like the bleeding edge of crypto and that's like DAOs. Like it's just, it's hard to get a bunch of people to like, agree on things that like anything you don't put in the code and hard code in the code, you basically have to like do soft governance. And that's the part that becomes hard. And so like over time, we're going to figure that out. And once we do, we can just replace Uber. And then it's like, that's what I'm talking about where it's like, you can then do that for everything. You can do that for content-based networks, which is like Facebook, where it's like, you can basically like have code in the middle. And then like me as a content creator and me as someone content consuming, we can just interact with each, the code and each other, and then Facebook itself gets cut off. And mm, for them to compete, they have to basically, because what ends up happening in the way we bring these people in is like, in the decentralized Uber network, 
what you do is you'd say, hey, I'm giving ownership of the Uber network to the users and the contributors, drivers of the Uber network. So it's like every time I complete a drive, I'll get some tokens that represents my ownership of the network. It's kind of like a stock almost. Every time I get a ride, I get an ownership token. And it's like now for Facebook, for the centralized Uber to compete with them, they have to give people a share of Uber every time you take a ride. That's not going to happen. Like it, it, it's, this is why I'm saying it's classic counter positioning where it's like you as the new incumbent, you do something that like basically the current incumbent can't do. And it's like for them to do that, it's basically they have to destroy the entire business model. And that lets you like ride that wave. It's more work for you in the short term. Like figuring out decentralized governance is basically BS hard work. Like it, it, you have people coming in just because they're speculating. You have people coming in who could be negative, bad actors. It's like getting a group of people to do the right thing, freaking hard. But once you figure it out, like, you just run with it. And now you basically have this clear green field. So it's like, that's the hard work you have to do. But then the opportunity is basically endless. Because, like, you know for a fact everyone's going to want to use the Uber. They get paid for using over the Uber. They're just funneling money into someone else. So absolutely, that's why it's like, I got my profile name and I got 25K. I'm not getting any profiles anywhere else. Like, it's not going to happen. Right. So if you <laughs> replace, let's just say Facebook, for instance, right, with one of these networks, right, and the network then is run by the computers, as we've, you know, talked about it, the robots, which I love that you, you say yeah. that. Um, I, I'm just having, like, flashbacks to, like, iRobot or, like, something <laughs> like that. Um, but if if you have you know, the computers that are taking care of that, essentially doing and building the network that is Facebook, right, there's no um, business or human element to that. Um, well, I mean, not yet. Because what, what ends up happening is for these networks to really, you do need human participants. Like even something like Bitcoin, it's like you need people to control the physical computers to basically right. power the database. So it's like there's always going to be human participants. And then you also need like, this is where it's like you give people tokens that are governance tokens because like you need to keep upgrading and keep the network growing and making new decisions about how the network is like, how do you decide who gets to make those choices? And that's where people are using governance tokens. And then those governance tokens work just like stocks because stocks are also just governance tokens. You know what I mean, and so it's like you, you kind of lock in whatever rules you can with the code so that those don't change. But then like you give out also governance tokens to participants so that you can basically, the people who are actually contributing and adding value in the network are also then making the rules about how the network changes because like unless you're perfect on the very first try your network's going to have to change and upgrade over time so does someone who is mining bitcoin get a governance token it's called bitcoin that is the governance token right 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 so somebody who is contributing to okay so somebody's contributing to the overall network of the blockchain right that yeah. bitcoin is on is getting that that's the governance token yeah, Bitcoin is just bad because they use Bitcoin to define the network and the token. Like Ethereum is better because it's like there's Ethereum, the network, and then ETH, the token. And that, that's like easier because it's not the same right. word. What but other things can you build on crypto networks. of Ethereum other than just ETH? Yeah, yeah. So you kind of want to think about these networks kind of like app stores. I, I call them DAP stores. Uh, I might write an article about them. It's like I love that. You have a, you have a DAP store that like you can then build like – if you think about something like uh, Uber or uh, what's it called, DoorDash, they are mini app stores. DoorDash is an app store for uh, restaurants. Spotify is an app store for music. Yep. So, but then they all live inside the general iOS app store, which is like for the entire iOS machine. You know what I mean? Yep. So it's like Ethereum is kind of like that app store for the entire machine. And then you can have like little app stores on top. Like you have music app stores, you have art app stores, because like 
finance, music, and art were like the first ones to come into blockchain. But now you're getting even interesting stuff. Like I'm excited for like decentralized journalism because general journalism is the same thing as I was describing with the Uber. You have the journalistic company in the middle, you have the readers, and then you have the uh, basically the journalist to journalist. And it's like you just remove the company and you replace that with like some kind of coordination mechanism that's mostly blockchain with them, maybe some tokens for governance. People are going to like, this is one of the things I want to figure out because then it's like, you kind of change the media that people are consuming. So that, but that's a side thing, but it's like more and more ways that people are coming in. You're, you're seeing musicians are coming in now. Artists are already in. That's where NFTs are. Finance were the first people in. And like, as each wave comes in, they're making their own little stores and like their own little apps on top of the generalized like app store. And then also there's not just only Ethereum as an app. So just like there's iOS, there's Android. There's also things right. like Steam for like games. So there's going to be lots of these different smart contract blockchains, which I call dApp stores. And like, so it's like you need the generalized blockchain network, which is at the protocol layer. And then you need like an application layer and like both of them are basically giving control to the users in the form of tokens. So protocols, which are like the big boys, giving control to the users, and then even apps and businesses giving control to the users. And like, these are the Web3 businesses that us, anyone in Web2 is going to have to compete with, where it's like, you're going to, like, there's going to be a lot of carnage because like, how are you going to compete with someone where it's like, I am paying them to use me. Like, you're not going to make it. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Like, this is like classic counter positioning. Like it, it's just, it's going to be really bad. And like, unless you're providing like an amazing service or like you just captured enough value, like any, like there's a lot of people in the middle that just aren't going to survive. Like people should be scared. Like this stuff is going to be very bad. So from what I'm hearing, the main pitch to a consumer for, let's just call it web three Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. To use web three Facebook over web two Facebook is, the fact that by being a participant in Web3 Facebook, by using us, you are going to inherently make, you know, currency. More money. Right? Money. Yes. You're good. Because, like I said, we have digital assets now. Everything you can do can be represented as a token, whether NFT or ERC20, whatever we want to call them. But it's like, this is like, it's like if you ignore the tech side, it's like we figured out how to make coordination networks where we can then give the users digital assets for their contributions in these networks. And then so it's like by you just using the network, you stand to make more upside and then you also get to control how the network goes for it. I don't have any choice in what Facebook does and I also don't make any upside. The new Facebook, I would get a stock every time I do, I post something, maybe it's like a fractional of a stock and I would also now with those stocks be able to decide what happens. So. But like, and then it's just behind the scenes, it's all Web3 cryptocurrency stuff. But like at the high level, that's all that's going to happen. Right now we define cryptocurrency, right? Bitcoin and ETH, at least I do, by its dollar value, right? Mm -hmm. So do you see that staying stagnant or do you see a world where we will literally just define currency as by, you know, Bitcoin, will that become something that we actually, you know, physically use to just, you know, exchange and purchase things with, you know, the further integrated, integrated that Web3 becomes in our society? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole end state of this stuff is crypto nations, like, because like, you're like, so yes, to answer your question, but like, that's just the, like, you have to now pick which app store ends up winning and which network wins. It's like, I think I, I've made my bets and I have, I have money on the line, but like that, that's not even what's even valuable. It's like, it doesn't matter. Like 
I'm, I'm going to win. It doesn't really matter which one. I, I basically have money in all the winners. Any anyone I participate in, I get the upside of. So it's like you actually don't even have to pick or choose. You can just like you like a network, you go participate in it, and you participate in the financial upside. And if you want to do the work, you can also then participate in like the decision making as well. Uh, what becomes interesting is like so. Like you saw this with this thing, there was this thing called Constitution Down. I don't know if you heard about it, but it's like people were like basically a group of people because we have crypto, we just pulled our money together and we what raised like twenty five million dollars. So a DAO is just a decentralized autonomous organization. It's basically just like a group of friends. Like imagine you and I and like all the people in our crypto research group text. We just say, Hey guys, let's pull ten thousand dollars together and we put it on chain because you can do that. And then we just basically have like, we get a smart wallet contract. So this is back to like, we let the robots handle the coordination. So now it's like, in order for any decisions to be made, instead of us having to like write out a bunch of contracts and make an LLC, we just write out some code that says, you need to sign off with your wallet. I need to sign, like basically everyone needs to sign off with their wallet for it to happen. So it's like, we replace all these legal jargon with just like 10 lines of code that just says, hey, this will not approve unless these people sign off. That simple. But like, a DAO at the end of the day is just like treasury management between a bunch of addresses. And that, that, that is like at the core. And then what you realize is like the entire world, every organization, all the way to nations is just treasury management. It, it's just that. That's what I'm saying. Like the ultimate end goal becomes like nations. And this is why I was bringing up Constitution DAO because it's like people decided to test it out. It's like they pulled $25 million in a week and they decided to go buy a physical asset. They didn't make it happen. But now it's like what happens when some of the next group of people do do that? What happens if a group of people raise a hundred million and buy an island and now they decide to form a nation? You know what I mean? Like this does go and happen. And it's like, it's, it's literally like the problem right now is like, we're figuring it out for like smaller level things. Like right now it's like there's DAOs to like buy NFTs and like really figure those things out. But like, once you figure out how people coordinate properly in these things, you just expand it to bigger and bigger things. Like someone's going to buy a satellite. Like I'm actually interested in that. Like I want to, I want to buy a spaceship. So like, I want to make spaceship DAO and like we can buy something and actually get to go to Mars along with the billionaires as our own DAO. Like that, that would be really interesting. Like that's right. going to be one of those things I'm going to participate in. And like, that's going to happen because there's going to be enough nerds like me who've made money or even, even if you don't make money, if you just get a million people each putting in $10, that's $10 million. That's enough to buy something. You know what I mean? Like so, this stuff is going to happen. We have Kickstarter. We've shown it's a thing. And in crypto, we don't actually need to ask permission. Right. Right. Define what you mean by you don't need to ask permission with crypto. Because I guess versus Kickstarter where you're giving money to someone to you know build something for you. Whereas with You crypto, give it to the robots. You're just giving it to the robots. And they, as long as the everyone uses handle- it. Correct. The robots handle all the coordination. So it's like, this is something where it's like, if you go back to the, this is why like crypto, like I said, started off with like, there's like basically the biggest mistake you will make in crypto is getting stuck in the paradigm you come in. So like it started off with the tech paradigm, then it went to the finance paradigm and like, then it went to the art paradigm and now it's exploding into other things, decentralized music, decentralized journalism, all these other things are like basically popping up. And it's like, just don't get stuck in your paradigm because then you don't see how the technology is evolving. Like this is what I'm saying. Like decentralized nations become like, that's as far as I can see it further ahead. But like, Oh, what was my point? I kind of lost my point a little bit. Uh, Whatever. It doesn't matter. I have have another question for you. So if, if, I was to say oh, to you, there's a thousand people in this DAO, right? 
And let's just say it was to buy the Constitution because that's what we were on. Let's just say that there was a thousand people. I don't know what the number was. No, we want to buy your house. We want to buy your house. Sure. The house you're sitting in right now. <laughs> sure. I want to buy my house, right? I don't have enough money to do it. I get a thousand people to jump in on the funds with me, right? Or a hundred people to jump in on the funds with me. Out of that hundred people, let's say that they agree to it in principle, right? Mm-hmm. And they submit the money, but then something else pops up and it takes another. 50 grand, right? Or there's some other stipulation that comes in later. Can one person hold up the purchase of that? Uh, so just, this is where it's like, because of the nature of code, you can set up a contract to be whatever you want. You can make one contract that says everyone has to agree, or you can make a smart contract that says people can vote with the amount they put in. So if I put in $10, I can only vote $10 worth of purchasing power. Like you set up mm. a smart contract to be whatever you want. It's Got all it. up to your imagination. So it's just like, we're making these like little robot coordination things that like d- do all the court because you can't trust humans because we're all bad people <laughs> whatever yeah. or we're, we're all motivated by different incentives which may not always align and so we let the robots do the incentive aligning for us and it's like i know for a fact that if i put a hundred dollars in this uh what's it called this smart contract i will be able to control what happens with that hundred dollars and as long as what the other people who now we have like a million dollars pooled together align with what I want to do, everything will be fine. If not, I just take my hundred dollars out. No harm, no foul. No harm, no foul. I love it. And that. it's like you're this is why it's like the great thing about like these crypto networks. It's like we even saw this like even at a protocol level, you had like the Bitcoin war where it's like if you don't agree with the direction of the network, you just fork the network and you make your own. There's like Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold and like all these different ways where it's like, hey, we didn't like how the network was being managed. So we just made a different version of the network. And people just do that. You could you could just do that. It's not a, like this is even how Ethereum came along because like Bitcoin wasn't letting us put code on the blockchain. They just wanted to manage only money. And they're like, well, we want to manage code as well. And so we made a network that does code in terms in addition to money. And turns out it was a better choice, or at least it seems like it's a good choice, at least. So this might be like, a silly question, but no, no dumb question. What does Web three Facebook, just for instance, what does that look like? Can I still access it via my laptop? Like, what does that look like as an application? How do I physically? Yeah, interact? yeah. Or do so you like, interact? You have to think. No, no. It's just right now we're in like the crappy days where it's like. It's basically, it's like computer science nerds like me. So it's like, when we talk about it, we have to talk about all this like hardcore tech jargon. But it's like, unless you understand how Web 2 works, you really don't need to understand how Web 3 works. All you're going to do is get going to, like, you don't, you cannot tell me what happens when you type in www.google.com. Like, even the text message analogy, most people don't realize what's happening when they hit enter after that. Like, you're sending a message to the network on a protocol. So, like, these were the original protocols, so TCP, IP and like the one you use for email, SMPT, yep. they were just protocols, but they didn't have any tokens. So they were open and permissionless, but like there was no tokens attached to them. So it's like, you're not getting a dollar every time you use email protocol, right. SMPT. But like, it also is great because like anyone can make their own version of email protocol. So there's the Google version of it, there's the AOL version, there's the Yahoo version, like because it's an open protocol. And so now it's like, we're gonna get to that layer where it's like, it's just Gmail, but right now people are having to talk about SMPT. And that's basically the current problem where it's like, we're still at the tech infrastructure layer and we're not at the like Gmail layer. Like the apps are just being built. This is what we're doing at Men Protocol. Like we're building the application layer and the protocol layers, like where it's like normal people don't have to think about this stuff. But like for now, you have to learn about the protocols if you want to basically capture some of the upside. And it's just hardcore tech stuff. That's basically it. Like 
if this was 20 years ago, you would have had to be learning about SMPT as opposed to normal people who just use their Gmail. That's all it is. So if I'm someone who's an everyday person, right, somebody who's not mm-hmm. one of the tech you know, wizards that you just mentioned, right? Someone who has an in-depth knowledge of the protocols and the infrastructures and the architecture of, you know, this Web3 world that we're slowly starting to live in, right? Um, or quickly starting to live in, if you really think about it, right? Yeah. Rapidly. Um, if you're an everyday person, for instance, like me, I think I probably have a little bit more knowledge after talking with you. Thank you, Rob. Um, <laughs> um, you know, after talking with you, I think I have a little bit more knowledge than let's just say the average Joe, but certainly not enough to be that person who knows about the protocols. So if you're talking to an everyday person, like, you know, like a step below me, right? What would your advice be to them to learn how to operate and and partake in the, not just to understand, but also to partake in the upside of the early days of Web3 and also the long-term upside of yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say all you have to do is just use the apps that are built on top of the protocols. That, that's basically it. Just like you use Gmail, which is built on, built on top of the SMPT protocol, and then you get to like experience it. And like all you have to do for like something like Ethereum, it's like at the high level, you just buy Ethereum because that's ownership in the Ethereum network. Right. And then after that, it's like you get a MetaMask. So that's basically like your Gmail login. And then you go to the different dApps that exist. So there's like one cool one I always recommend if you go to start off is like Zerion. Uh, Mem, Mem Protocol is going to definitely be one that you can use. Uh, shameless plug. Uh, OpenSea is another dApp on top of like, we, we call them dApp because they're decentralized apps as opposed to like regular apps that go through like the app store. But it's like, yep. you just use the apps and then as you're using them, you're going to basically become a contributor. And then over time, as you build your contribution graph, like people are going to reward you for being a network participant. Like, that's basically all you have to do. So it's like, you kind of have to go over the hurdle of like, first you got to get Ethereum on on like Bitcoin or like, I mean, Coinbase or Gemini, which I recommend Gemini because you can also start earning interest. But uh, this is not investment advice. Nothing I say here. (laughs) Everything's for (laughs) entertainment and education purposes only. (laughs) We should please put that in the beginning of your thing. (laughs) I will. But uh, yeah, yeah. so so you you can do that. But then it's like, so that's just like you're investing in like the protocol layer. Like it's just, it's two parts. There's the protocol layer, like I said, SMPT, and then there's the application layer, Gmail. And those are the two things. And it's like, we're still in the protocol and we're transitioning to the applications. Literally every good application layer in Web3 right now was built in the last year. So it's like, we're still talking about the protocol layer because that's still even being figured out. Like we still have to figure out scaling because like right now you, you basically have to pay unlimited amount of gases gas fees and stuff like that but like we already have solutions for that it's just like you want to deploy these things right uh you, we have to figure out environmental stuff but once again have solutions for that you just got to deploy it slowly so it's like normal people are having the experience what us software developers go through all the time which is like behind the scenes there's a lot of shit happening but now you guys are just seeing it <laughs> you, you usually just get, get to ignore all this stuff so you're kind of experiencing what our like regular days like where it's oh yeah we don't just get to like push things. We have to like think about the trade-off and like think about how to build long-term systems and like stuff like that. But like over time, the protocol layer is just going to disappear and you're just going to use the app layer. So get a MetaMask, get something like Gemini, buy Ethereum, send it to that MetaMask, and then log into the different dApps out there that you're interested. If you care about finance, there's an ecosystem of finance, DeFi applications. And I, I can give you guys recommendations and show notes that you can have. If you care about like art and media, you have 
the NFT world, you have decentralized music. So if you're an artist, I see people are working on like movies where you can like basically fund the movie and then you get like ownership and royalty rights in the movie. Same thing with royalty rights in the music. If you're interested in games, oh my God, can I tell you about like Axie Infinity? is like the best place to start because like that is a video game where you will get paid for playing the video game uh and so but there's like a whole bunch of play to earns like whatever you it's like anything you can do on the internet people are making like apps where you're also now an owner in these apps as well and you get to participate in the financial upside of them and so we're just recreating a lot of the current internet but like with user ownership and we let the robots take care of more of the coordination so that we don't have to like trust someone in the middle. So it's like, because we let the robots take care of the coordination, now I don't have to pay a bunch of people at a company and I can give more value back to the users and the contributors. And so we're just doing that for everything. It's almost like a shift and just like, really just like relocating the 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 money that is going into the company essentially, because you just said it. You can, yeah. you can replace the people that are running the company with, robots for robots instance, right yeah it's just code then you know in your mind does that create a labor shortage at some point so this is where i get excited by things like axie infinity because now this is like the whole this is why mark manson says so smart it's like you don't get rid of your problems you get higher quality problems and so now we get to tackle things like hey i can like there's people who make like who make a thousand dollars a month playing Axie Infinity in the Philippines, which is more than they make as their minimum wage over there. So it's like, you can now play video games to make money. Like we're gonna move work to like, hey, I'm doing work I like as opposed to work I have because it's like, and then also because we're all gonna be making assets, you can also have your assets work for you. Like I'm making $75 in some of my assets, like in just earning interest right now. That's just cause like I'm very conservative. Like there's people making real money you can make eight thousand percent interest if you are reckless in crypto <laughs> I, i'm I, I stick with like nine ten percent but even that's better than you'll get it like banks are giving you one percent like I, so right. like even at a cons even at a conservative nine ten percent like i said you can make eight thousand if, if you want to know ping me i can i can walk you through the reckless degen stuff but like basically like you'll get two things where it's like one because we're getting more assets we can actually have those assets work for us so it's like i can get more of my money to income from my assets that's like the world i see and then the second thing is like i can now also do works in new type of ways like you have DAOs where it's like i can go into these things that i have ownership in these tokens and work there and i can contribute to this decentralized facebook because it's not owned for anyone and no one can tell me i can just start adding value and it's like as people in the network like it they will like reward me for it and so you can move from job to job you can do work for new things like playing video games like the nature of work Honestly, the nature of organizations is about to change dramatically. Like we're, this is just early days and like, there's like, we first had to figure out the tech. Now we're figuring out like the scaling of the tech. Also a bunch of people are figuring out like, how do we actually, because like governing the commons is a freaking hard problem. How do you get a bunch of people to just do the right thing? People are really trying to figure out. We're trying to figure that out. Man, and companies and businesses all over, like web three businesses are trying to figure it out. But like, over time, there's going to be a playbook for how you basically do decentralized governance. Then it's just you just scale that out. And then these organizations just become bigger and bigger. Like it starts off with buying the Constitution. Then what happens, like there's people even talking about this now. Like people are talking about Dow House Dot Takeover. So it's like a group of people raise a million dollars and then they go buy a seat on a regular centralized company. Like they buy a board seat. Right. And now we have ownership of centralized assets. And it's like th these things are going to get very interesting because I, I apparently just happened I mean, to Exxon Mobil. 
we we literally just had a preview of this last year when or this year actually when when you're talking about the GameStop you know retail stock producers yep. <laughs> right getting together in Reddit and saying community based decision making right not necessarily on the blockchain but on web 2 right there was a community based community based um forum of people that said screw the hedge fund guys we are going to you know basically you know load this stock up we're going to purchase it we're going to drive the price up of GameStop and then unfortunately I forget if it was Robinhood or Egg Coin. No no yeah I think or whatever they, they based- but that's because we're letting the humans control it. So it's like if humans are controlling it, like right. they can basically do things for their gain. When the robots are controlling it, like it'll just go through. The trades will happen and there's right. no, no one can stop it. And so like we're still in the early days, but like this is where this leads. Like this stuff is so obvious. Like it's just you have to like build up from like all the technical stuff, three generals problem, work your way up to like protocol layers, yep. then work your way up to apps. It's like until you can actually get to like that level. Once you can see the apps, then it's like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. And it's just like, now it's a time game. What would have been the outcome of the GameStop community-based It would have went through. No one would have been able to stop it. Like, the code does not know that I exist. On the blockchain, no one cares if you're a toaster, let alone a human. And so whether I want it, like, this is why it's like if you lose your your crypto password, no one can help you because, like, no one can help you. Like it's just math and cryptography. So it would just go through. If you execute a trade on crypto, you do something dumb, it'll go through. If you do something smart, it'll go through. It'll just go through. So hold tight to that password. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't don't share your private keys. Don't share your seed phrase when you start getting into like. Do you have yours memorized? Ah, uh, no. Well, maybe one day. Maybe. Maybe once I get a little bit more coin, but at that point I'll probably have to do like multiple wallets. Like I don't have enough that I'm really worried about it too much. Yeah, totally. No, I understand that. I understand that. Rob, um, as we're kind of coming up on time here, I wanted to uh, acknowledge you before I ask my last question. I wanted to acknowledge you for the intention that you produce your thoughts as well as then communicate them. And I also wanted to acknowledge you for your um, ability to take complex uh, ideas and concepts and distill them into anecdotal pieces of information that are bite-sized so people can consume them. Um, because you're taking really complex ideas here um, if within the world of Web3, within the world of cryptocurrency, uh, within the world of protocols, and you're breaking them down into realistic, real-world uh, examples that people can actually understand. And so I think that you basically just gave a crash course in terms of what Web3 is, where it's going, and why it's important, and why people should start paying more attention to it, especially if they're a naysayer right now. Um, and you thoroughly convinced me within just two conversations, <laughs> conversations um, that it's something that I need to dedicate, even if it is just 1% more of my time to, it's it's something I need to dedicate more time to. Um, and I think that that's something that I'm, gonna, I'm taking to heart uh, from this conversation. And I'm excited to continue to kind of, you know, follow you and, and ride your coattails a little bit, to be honest, um, and, and do this. But thank you for being intentional with your thoughts and your communication and for also distilling complex ideas into these um, really consumable bite-sized, um, you know, anecdotes that are really, um, you know, helping people understand um, these complex issues. So I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you being on here. 
Yeah, man. Thank you. I live off compliments and nourish my soul. And so I will keep trying to produce more. We're all going to make it. I love it. I love it. Last question. Uh, and I end the interview with, I end this, uh, interviews with this question every time is how do you define growth? Uh, well, my first thought was happiness, but I guess, uh, yeah, that seems good enough to me. Happiness. Happiness. Give me a little bit more on that. How, 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 so in your definition of growth is happiness, right? How do you define happiness then? Uh, so I guess for me, it's happiness is just feeling like I'm going to die happy. Like I always imagine like on my deathbed being surrounded by a group of friends, looking back on my life and being proud of the choices and decisions I made, the people I helped along the way and the things I accomplished. And so it's like, as long as I'm moving towards that, I tend to feel happy. And so that's how I look at growth. And that's basically it. I love it. Rob Neal, thank you so much for being on here, spending time with us. And I hope to do it again soon in the future. You too, man. This is great. Hey guys, thank you so incredibly much for listening to today's episode. It means the world to me, and I'm so grateful for any member of this audience. If you found today's episode valuable, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you're listening to this show. Subscribe to the show, rate us five stars, and drop us a review if you can. It would mean the world to me. Remember, you are valuable, you are worthy, and you are already enough. Now let's go out there and grow together.